thank you so much for being a part of our worship service each and every uh, each and every week. So traditionally, these four candles of Advent represent the four major themes of Christmas. So the four themes you probably are familiar are hope, peace, joy, and love. And over the next four Sundays, beginning today, we'll be highlighting, spotlighting these different themes, concluding with our Christmas Eve worship. So the, so the candle that we've lit today and that we always light on the first Sunday of Advent is all about hope. Advent truly is the season that inspires and informs our hope as believers because by looking back on something that has happened, we can now look forward to something that will happen. Our confidence in Christ's return is supported by the evidence of Christmas, of his first coming. He has come and therefore he will come again. Our position in this story of the redemption story is a very unique one. Uh, it's really a privileged one that uh, only those on this side of, of the Christmas celebration or this side of the first Christmas really get to enjoy because we don't sit today hoping against hope that a Savior will come and right all of our wrongs, reconcile us to God and bring justice justice to our world and peace to our hearts, we stand in the shadow of the life and work of Christ, which doesn't just give us hope, but it gives us faith. To the world that Christ first came to, there were no decorations, there were no lights, there were no calendars counting down the days. It was literally out of nowhere, except for a very few people that could have saw it coming. Uh, the rest of the world, most of the world, they had no idea that Christmas was about to come, and they didn't even know it came when he finally arrived. It took a long time for the word to spread. You know, we often use the terms hope and faith interchangeably, but the Bible helps us understand how one builds on the other. A very familiar, famous verse that you probably have heard before, Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if you know the, the chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, the whole chapter is really uh, dedicated to appreciating the saints of ancient Israel, the, the saints that Lindsay sang about, the, the, the saints of Israel that waited and sang that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. They put their faith in God. They put their hope in God for so, 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 so very long and they never laid their eyes on the Messiah that God promised and that they prepared for. So these we read about in the Old Testament, they are preparing, uh, they are preparing for, but they have no proof, they have no evidence other than the promises of God. They were clinging to every last bit of hope. God would give the people little breadcrumbs to assure them and to encourage them to hold on, but there were times that it got pretty bleak for the people of Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, there are many heartfelt, desperate cries to God asking that he would do something to relieve the world. We, we all love the classic Christmas carol, Oh Holy Night. And one of the most powerful revealing lines about the ancient world is from that song where it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining and that word pining means yearning from a, from a deep place of, of despondency and, and, and even sickness longing hoping for something to change I don't think it will ever really register with us what it was like for the ancients to live in a world that was so dark and so cold it made hope almost feel like a fool's errand the people of Israel were longing and, and, and were always expressing uh, what their hearts 
were full of this agony that they were dealing with as they waited for God to do something. Uh, You can read through the book of Psalms and you find things like this again and again from King David and many others. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How much longer? Are we going to have to wait? Psalm 39, the, the, the psalmist says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And over and over and over again, we hear the people declare that they are putting their hope in God. They are not going to give up, even when they had a lot of good reasons to. And that's what made many people shake their head in disbelief at Israel because to be such a downtrodden people, the majority of the people just continue to declare, my hope is in you, Lord. But you might wonder, what was the basis for their hope? A lot of it was things they'd heard that God had done ages before, but honestly, they couldn't feel the effects of those ancient miracles anymore. Abraham was long gone. Moses was long gone. Things were not like they once were for the people of Israel in, in, in the days of when, when these Psalms were written in the days of the prophets. Um, much of their hope was based on and rooted in God's repeated promises that he declared and communicated through prophets across many years. And, and, and you all know the prophets fairly well. Uh, people like Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel, Jonah, Micah, Zechariah, but, but one that you may not recall, and, and definitely not the most famous of them all, and he didn't have a red nose either, is a guy named Habakkuk. So just because his name's tricky, I gave you a little bit of a help uh, pronouncing his name, ha, uh, Habakkuk. So Habakkuk um, uh, is, is a guy that you don't talk about a lot. We don't name our kids after this guy. We probably should. He, he needs a little bit of credit, needs a little bit of attention in today's world. Um, but Habakkuk's contribution to the Bible is very unique. Uh, it's very unique in that it's not just an oracle that God gave him that's meant to tell us something about God or the future. His book is really a conversation between him and God. So if you want to find your place in your Bibles this morning, Habakkuk, probably the easiest way to get there is to go to the book of Matthew and go backwards uh, about uh, 50 or so pages. He is right before um, the book of uh, Zechariah and Haggai and Zephaniah. You'll find the book of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is a really unique book because most of the prophets, it's God speaking through the prophet to the people. But Habakkuk is unique in that it's really a conversation between him and and God. Um, it, it's like reading a chain of emails or clicking on an email that you've been corresponding with someone and you can continue to see the, the back and forth from beginning to end. Um, it's reading, a, a, it's like opening your text message on your phone and you can see all the little bubbles, the green and the, the green or the blue and the white as you're conversing from, with someone. Habakkuk is literally like reading someone's conversation printed out. Uh, and it's conversation between God and the prophet. Now, usually the prophet is the one assuring the people because of his own faith and because of what God has told him. But in this case, case Habakkuk is representing the people, sharing their anxiety and their frustration and concerns over the nation's situation. They have waited years, and I mean years, like hundreds of years, centuries on top of centuries for God to answer his promise to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And while there were many high marks, the overall condition of Israel was in decline. It was almost like God had established Israel just to make them suffer an even worse fall. Having believed that they were being set up to something for something glorious, only to be let down. 
So they had brought into this idea that Israel was going to be the nation through which God brought salvation to the world. Now everyone had their own ideas of what salvation meant, but the Old Testament's pretty clear that God was trying to reconcile the world back to him. The world was fallen into sin and God was trying to bring people back to him and he was going to do so by sending a Messiah or an anointed one or a savior. Salvation was going to come not through power or prosperity, but through a savior from God to reconcile us back to God. Again, there were debates and theories about how this would work, how this would happen, but it was agreed upon by the Jews that God was going to raise up a savior to intercede for and advocate for not just Israel, but even the whole world. So while all these promises are being made, Israel is becoming a nation and being established and obtaining credibility on the world stage. It just made sense that the nation, uh, as it continued to rise in prosperity and in power and prominence, it, it made sense that Israel was going to be so successful, so powerful, so important that everyone would be you know, enamored by them and taken aback by them and they would get the attention of the world and that that would be the point that God would send a savior into Israel. So as Israel saw the nation grow, grow and grow and rise and rise and, and get more and more powerful and more and more prosperous, um, they expected the Messiah to be just around the corner. But if you know the story of Israel, that's not how it worked. The nation began to fight within itself. It became, it became downtrodden by the nations. And Israel uh, was uh, ascending, and then it began to descend. And the bottom fell out. The nation split in half. There was a civil war. Kingdoms on every side began to rise and target the nation. The northern ten tribes were taken over by Assyria, which was an evil empire of those days. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was uh, the target of the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonians had taken over the Middle East, set their sights on Judah, which was all that was left of the nation of Israel. And, and things got so dire that the area was essentially surrounded and cut off from importing any goods. So basically, here's how it works, how it worked back then. The Babylonians were so rich and so resourceful that they, when they wanted to take over a standing nation, invasion and war was not their plan A. Their first move was essentially to build an entire town outside of whatever capital city they were targeting and they would besiege it. And Babylon was famous for or infamous for these Babylonian besieges where they would build these forts around the city and they would literally choke out the people, choke out the heart of the smaller nation to the point that they would have to surrender. In the meantime, whatever nation they were trying to take over would send its troops from different cities to try to fight off the Babylonians, and, and it was just, it was, it was demoralizing, it was, it was pitiful, they never had a chance. Everyone trapped inside the capital would just watch from the walls as Babylon was just a buzzsaw, that if you came up against it, you were doomed. It was really a nefarious and, 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 and just um, a ruthless strategy. None of the nations that Babylon besieged could survive their tactic. And eventually all of them surrendered. And they were powerless in the shadow of Babylon. So that is what's going on as Habakkuk serves his turn as Israel's prophet. And not only are the people of Israel losing their minds, they're coming to Habakkuk asking him for encouragement and positivity. Have you looked outside Habakkuk? The Babylonian forces are 10 times our forces. They have built an entire siege work around the city. We are running out of food. We are running out of water. They have cut off our reservoirs. We are running out of time. Habakkuk, have you talked to God lately? Has God given you some vision? Is there something we can do? Is there something that God's going to do? So as the people of Israel are desperate for any sort of information, 
that's what makes Habakkuk's book really stand out above the rest. Because he's coming to God not only with the nation's concerns, but with his own concerns. Now, I think we all can relate to this position that Habakkuk's in. As a pastor, I can relate to it. As parent, as members of your family, you can relate to this because we all know what it's like to have someone come to us with their fears and their worries and their stress and they're hoping we can say something to make them feel better about what they're dealing with. All the while, we're thinking, I don't feel good myself and we're trying to help others feel better and we feel just as bad, maybe even worse. We're a bundle of nerves. I'm sure, we, I'm sure when, we, when things first get started and the nation began to, 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 to be afraid of Babylon when they were moving in or they heard the rumors, the people came to him and Habakkuk probably said, listen, y'all, it's going to be okay. We can believe and trust in God. And I'm sure as things got more and more bleak, they came to him and asked him, what are we going to do? And again, like a pastor, like a parent, I'm sure he assured them things are going to be okay. We just have to keep praying and believing because that's our job to make people feel better when they are, you know, desperate. But deep down, you've been there, deep down Habakkuk was deeply distressed because he didn't have a lot of confidence that things were going to be okay. He had tried to put a front and project confidence, but as things got worse and worse, he grew weary of saving face and assuring the people as he himself was less and less sure. So he comes to God, echoing a refrain that had been prayed and lifted up countless times through the years. So here's the thing about Habakkuk. His book does not begin with God speaking through him. His book does not begin like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like uh, Ezekiel, like many of the prophets where God calls them and anoints them and says, I'm going to make you a messenger. His book literally begins with him coming to God with not just a question, but with a complaint, which is why I think it makes it a very unique read and it makes it really important for us to understand that Habakkuk is really a stand-in for us. So if you have a Bible... Look with me at Habakkuk. Really, it begins in verse 2, 2 through 4. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. So literally, the nation of Babylon has surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. The nation of Judah is in desperation. And Habakkuk comes to him, comes to God and says, how long are we going to have to ask the same thing and pray the same prayer and deal with the same anxieties? How long? Now, I want you to pay attention to this. It does not start, Habakkuk's prayer does not start, our Father which art in heaven. Not a bad way to start a prayer, but that's not how he prays, right? Habakkuk's prayer does not begin, Lord, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you can do. I know, what you, I know that you'll do it again. Habakkuk gets right to the chase. Because when you're surrounded and you're desperate, you don't have time for pleasantries. Now listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't follow the templates the Bible gives you. I'm not saying you shouldn't revere God and come to God in a posture as the Bible gives us that, that, that prescription. I'm just saying it's okay, it's even encouraged. If you need to pour your heart out to God, you can cut right to the chase and do it. I hope that helps somebody get a little bit of freedom today in your prayers that you don't have to come with some professional, sacred, holier-than-thou presentation to God. You can just get right down to business. You can skip the pleasantries. When your heart is heavy and your soul is wearied, get to the point where you tell God what's on your mind and he will respond with something that you need to hear. 
So Habakkuk doesn't come with some lofty introduction. He just says, Lord, how long am I going to have to ask for help? And you aren't listening. So Habakkuk asks, he complains, how much longer are we going to have to wait for you to do what you have promised? Because before Habakkuk, there was the prophet Isaiah. Remember Isaiah? You shall, uh, there will be a prince of peace, an everlasting father, mighty God. A savior shall come to you. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Remember the promises, the rod of Jesse, uh, right? The, these messianic prophecies that God gave the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the guys that we sing about and talk about at Christmas, right? But then it comes Habakkuk's generation and none of that stuff happened. None of that stuff is happening and, and it's only gotten worse. The nation of Israel is surrounded the people. Ten tribes are lost, defeated. Judah is desperate. Habakkuk says, God, you've promised, you've promised, you've promised, you've promised. We've waited, we've waited, we've waited, and we have not gotten anything from you. Now, we're talking on a grand scale of messianic promises, but I think we can relate to this in our own lives. It may be something super serious that you've prayed for. It could be something private, something nobody else even knows about. We've all come to God and asked and we've wondered in our hearts even, how long, how much longer do we have to wait? Do we have to hope? Again, it's good to have hope, but after a while, it can kind of be a grating thing, an insult to injury, almost like we're just delusional about reality. I mean, maybe you've waited and you've waited a long, long time for God to move in a certain area of your life. Your hope is on the ropes at this point. Now, maybe you don't know what this means. I used to say this phrase and not really know what it meant, and then I finally figured it out. It's referring to a boxing match where the fighter has their opponent up against the ropes of the ring, back against the wall, out of energy, without the agility to duck or shift away or swing. Uh, some, sometimes life gets us this way. We've, pl- we've been pummeled again and again. We've taken it to the jaw, to the side. We don't have any swings left. Habakkuk's question to God is one that was often asked by prophets and saints in his generation how long shall we cry for help and you will not hear but I want to make it very clear it was never a question about God's ability it was never a question about God's integrity they're they're not saying God you've lied now I mean Jeremiah did but this is a different sermon They never said, hey, God, you've lied to us. They never said, God, you're not able to do this. It was always this this really heartfelt, sincere dedication to God. God, we know you can do this. We know who you are. We believe your promises. But we don't understand your timing. And I think a lot of us are there today. I think all of us in some way, shape, or form are there today. We've prayed and we've asked and we've waited We look at the world and we look at our lives, we wonder how much longer. Maybe this is a good exercise that we should practice often, but I think today we can do this. Whether you have your own burdens or you're just, uh, maybe you'd be willing to bear someone else's burden today. I don't know what keeps you up at night. It could be a personal struggle. It could be a family member. It could be the person across the hall from you. It could be the person in the bed with you. I I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're dealing with. It could be something you deal with at work, something you deal with in your personal life, in your professional life. It could be something that you just look at the world and you think, "How how, how in the world did this happen? So if you're dealing with something that you have been praying about for a long, long time, or you're just willing to intercede for someone else who is praying again and again and again without getting any answers... 
I think we should all just step into this place of, of, of asking God, how long? Because if Habakkuk could pray the prayer and get written down in Scripture, I think it's safe that we pray. We can ask this same question. I think God wants us to be honest and he wants us to bring our wearied hearts to him. And that's what Advent is all about. Advent is about inviting us to bring our worries to God, to bring our fears to God, our dimming and fading hopes to God, and find the strength that he offers. Because before Christmas came 2,000 years ago, the world that was, this was them. This was their hearts, wearied and overwhelmed because their hope was fading their hope was dimming. I'm sure over these last few minutes, you've thought of something you probably didn't have to think too hard, honestly. Can we just all ask this together? And then we're gonna wrap up looking at what God's response is. You'll never get a response that you need until you ask the questions that you need. So can we just all, can we just all ask together? How long? Oh Lord, can we say that together? How long? Oh Lord. Again, I don't, I don't, I can't mean that for you. I can't get in your heart and mean that. But if you pray that sincerely, again, it could be something you're praying about yourself, your family, your, the world. I mean, there's something to get burdened about today. If you're not burdened already, there's something you can lay yourself under and, and you can, hey, just talk to me after the service. I'll, I'll give you some stuff. How long? Oh, Lord. I mean, did you know that a book of the Bible literally begins? Did you know that before today? A book of the Bible literally begins with a prophet asking God, how long? Oh, Lord. Do you want to know what God has to say to Habakkuk? Well, you don't need me to tell you. It, it's in verse five. This is the Lord's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished and astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the answer I want God to give me. <laughs> you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Hey, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Why the wait? Why the delay? Well, I mean, I've been waiting a long time. And God, I mean, it seems like such a nothing answer, doesn't it? Such a non-answer, such a cop-out. Well, you see little, little people of the world with these little minds. You wouldn't believe me if I told you what I was doing. Is that frustrating? Does that kind of aggravate you? You don't come to church to be told, well, if I had an answer, I'd tell you. If, uh, if, you, could, if you could handle the answer, I'd tell you, but you just, you just can't. Your, your minds are too small. Now, let's try this on for size. What if God rolled up his sleeves and said, okay, Habakkuk, sit down, take some notes. It's going to take a while. You want to know what I'm doing? You want to know why all this is going on? I can tell you. Okay, so I established Israel to be a light to the world. But the problem is Israel's a very small light and the world's very dark and it's very big. So yeah, David and Solomon got the attention of some of the kings and queens, but it wasn't enough of the attention that, that the world, it wasn't enough of the world to get, uh, that, that I needed to get the attention of. So remember, the world's out of control. Everybody's minds are corrupt. All these false religions, all these pagan dead-end pathways. So I created Israel to get the truth out about the one true God, his love and his plan for the nations. And by the way, I'm still sending a Messiah. There's part of my plan, but a lot's got to happen. The world's got to get ready for him first. The stage has got to be set. 
So Israel, you see the Babylonians outside, you see the besieged, you see that surrounding nation, the wicked people that are surrounding you. Listen, it's not going to get better. They are going to take you captive. Israel, from prosperity to captivity. Israel, Habakkuk, I hate to tell you, buddy, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Babylon's going to take you captive. All the sons of Judah are going to be carted into the royal palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Their names are going to be changed. Their language is going to be changed. We're going to do things to them to make sure they never have families. But oh, by the way, four of those sons of Judah that might would have been king one day, they are going to become administrators in the kingdom of Babylon. One of them is a guy named Daniel. He's going to have the ear to the emperor and he's going to show him the things of God. And there's three other guys. They have crazier names than even yours, Habakkuk. They're going to be part of the regime too. And Daniel's going to be sitting on a trip one, one, one month and they're going to be left kind of ruling their, their, their administration and they're going to get upset because King Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this giant golden image to himself and he's going to ask everybody in his administration and in his kingdom to bow down and worship the golden image. But these three guys, they are going to refuse to worship the, king, worship the idol. They're going to refuse to worship and he's going to threaten to throw them in a fiery furnace that he has built to torture torture his enemies and Habakkuk's thinking what's this got to do with me and my problem he says just sit back and keep taking notes I've got a long story to tell I told you you wouldn't believe me if I told you but I'm telling you now so you think Judah's on fire right now can you imagine what they're gonna face but get a load of this when their backs are against the wall when their hopes on the ropes and the king asked them if they're gonna really go into the fire and not worship him this was their response Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, talk about an unshakable hope. Habakkuk, you're thinking about giving up. Imagine what they're going to deal with when they're literally going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They've already lost their nation. They've already lost their, their chance at being king. They've lost their identity. And now they're going to lose their lives. Can you imagine how much they prayed? How long, oh Lord? But in this moment when it's all on the line, they did not budge. They trusted God. Habakkuk, are you still taking, taking good notes? They get thrown in the fire and they are not only not they are they're, they're not only not consumed, but a fourth man shows up in the fire as if to shield them and save them. And Nebuchadnezzar falls out of his chair, runs to the furnace, opens the door, and he brings out the three that were bound. And he's completely speechless. And he did something that no king of his kind would ever do or never would do after. He issues an empire-wide decree about the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar says, the God, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, delivered his servants, who trusted in him. This was only the beginning. 
Babylon is taken over by Persia, but Daniel survives the transition and he ends up an advisor to a guy named Cyrus, the emperor of Persia. And Daniel shows him uh, the book of Isaiah that was written about 150 years before this period of time. And he shows him the scroll of Isaiah and he says, Cyrus, hey, guess what? 150 years before you were even king, before you were even thought about, Isaiah the prophet wrote about you. Yeah, that's right. Isaiah 44, God told Isaiah about a man named Cyrus. He is my shepherd, shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. When Isaiah got that prophecy, Jerusalem was doing fine. But afterwards, it was surrounded during Habakkuk's day. It was destroyed. Babylon came in. Persia came in. And Daniel shows Cyrus, your name was written down hundreds of years ago. God, Daniel explains how God is using Israel to spread his truth to the nations. Cyrus green lights the return of Israel to its land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the nation. Many of the Jews go home, but many of them are scattered to the winds and they take their faith to the ends of the earth. And all of a sudden, all around the world, people are beginning to learn about the God of Israel. But there was more to come. Habakkuk, I hope you're still listening. Israel was rebuilt under Nehemiah, Ezra, Zechariah, Haggai, and then a few years go by and the Greeks take over the world. Alexander the Great has an empire that was unrivaled by his generation. The Greek influence became so strong that literally every person within a hundred years of the takeover begins to speak the Greek language. For the first time in a long, long time, there is a common language on the earth. Greek. So now all of a sudden, people can understand everybody. The language barrier that existed is gone. After the Greeks fall, the Roman Empire rises up, which spans the known world at the time. Rome retains the Greek language because it works really well. Everybody knows it. And for the first time in centuries, the world is at peace. No wars, no, uh, no unrest, no calamities. The world is at peace. All is calm under something called the Pax Ramona, or Roman peace. And then Rome does something to unify the world. It builds roads that connect every nation because everyone's at peace with each other, no wars. Everybody loves Rome. Rome doesn't love everybody, but hey, they're afraid of them at least. Rome has the whole world stepping in line. They build roads from Europe to Asia to the Middle East to Africa. So now everybody can get everywhere and everybody can talk to everybody. They can speak the same language and they have roads to travel on. No place is unreachable. One of the major crossroads happened to be the tiny nation of Israel that Rome takes special interest in. Rome is perplexed by the Jewish religion, how it's endured. They, cannot, they can't understand how the Jews continue to worship their one God when everyone else is worshiping Zeus and Jupiter and all the Roman gods. Israel has stayed faithful. They're uniquely, they have a unique respect for Israel. They allow them to worship as they always have. They're interested in learning the stories of ups and downs. So Rome respects the Jewish leaders so much that if they come to the empire with a concern, Rome will tend to it swift, swiftly. And Rome even sets up kind of a, an outpost in the middle of Judea and sets up a governor in Judea called Pilate to especially look over the area because they really are really interested in these Jewish people. So 
around 33 AD, the Jewish authorities come to the Roman governor and they say, I know it seems like there's nothing going on down here, but there's this rabbi who is a real thorn in our side. We need you guys to kill him. <laughs> there's no war going on. There's no insurrection. There's no riots. What, you want us to kill the rabbi? And, and they lie to the Romans. They say he's declaring himself God. He's a threat. He's crazy. And they hear him and they try him and he seems like an innocent man. But they're desperate. And, and again, there's really no reason why they should have ever done this. But in 33 AD, Rome crucifies the carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. And little did they know, little did they know, they had all played a hand in God's plan for the ages. Habakkuk, I know I've told a long story here, but I told you, you wouldn't believe me if I told you what I was doing. The Apostle Paul summarizes it like this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption into the family of God. There was no other way it could happen. So the Jews were scattered to the nations thanks to the Babylonians and the Persians. A common language thanks to the Greeks that everyone could communicate with everyone. A road system because of the Romans that connected every nation. The Roman crucifixion that put Jesus on high display. All part of God's redemption plan. And after Jesus was buried and thought to be forgotten to the ages, he rose back to life and emboldened his followers to go and spread the good news to the whole world. And guess what? Everybody speaks one language. Guess what? There are roads for everybody to get to everywhere. So when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, it was not an impossible task. Because everything was set up just as it needed to be. The church had everything it needed. The world was ready for the witness to spread and the expansion of the church to boom. So Habakkuk, I know that was a long story. Maybe you didn't get all those notes, but somebody else will pick it up. Don't worry. You see, there's no way we, we would have been able to understand or believe all that, all that, even if God told him step by step. And I think the same is true for all of our lives. If God told us what he was doing, you wouldn't believe him. We wouldn't believe him. If God told him every little detail, told us every little detail, we wouldn't believe him. Over in chapter 2, God has a more simple answer to give a back. There's more back and forth. But God gives Habakkuk this, this answer. He says, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablet so he who reads may run or that he may run who reads it. For, the still, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It will not delay. If it seems slow, wait for it. Underline that phrase. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous, the just, shall live by their faith. I know it seems like things are moving slow in slow motion, but God puts his own name on the line. If you keep waiting, if you keep hoping, it will not delay. 
it will surely come. You see, the Christmas story was one ages in the making. There were so many twists and turns, unexpected, unbelieving, unbelievable chapters that led up to it. But here's the thing. It would not come too soon and it would not come too late. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son into the world to redeem every sinner of every nation and every generation. So we sit here today, not simply with a reason to hope, but a reason to trust and walk by faith. Indeed, the righteous, those who belong to God, we live by faith as in we don't perish, we don't lose heart, we don't give up. Our faith in God's promises sustain us and hold us up because of Christmas, because we live on this side of the Christmas story. We don't just have hope, we have confidence. Unlike Habakkuk and his generation, we aren't longing for something that has never happened before, that we have no idea if it might happen or how it might happen. We are looking to someone who has already been here and already done what we needed the most done. Think about this. We have never, we will never live, we will never know a world that God has not stepped into, it should say. We'll, we, will, we will only ever know a world that God stepped into and changed forever. Do you, think, do you ever think about that? We'll never know a world that has not been impacted and entered into by God. I know the world might seem dark and bleak and hopeless to you, but do you understand that we, we only know a version of this world that God touched down on 2,000 years ago, that God stepped into himself in our own skin. We only know a world where God has stepped into and God has left an impact that is still being felt. So no matter what we're facing today, Advent reminds us and ensures us God's plans are rock solid. We wait on many things to happen and many prayers to get answered, our world to be restored, our Lord to return. And make no mistake, these things will happen. We just have to keep waiting. Maybe the hardest thing to hear is when God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. As if it wasn't already seeming slow to us. God, we didn't need you to confirm that it was slow. Of course, it's slow. That's how things work, right? Things are slow. God says, wait for it. And the proof, the reason why you can believe that God is at work whenever you don't see him, it's because Christmas literally is the result of thousands of years of preparation that had to happen just as it did. While we wait, we, have, we can have the same kind of hope, the same kind of faith that Habakkuk confesses at the end of the book. Turn over a page or two, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. This is how he signs off. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, that produce the olive oil, the, the, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you hear what he's saying? Even if the trees don't bloom, even if there's no harvest, even if there's no oil, even if there's no food, even if the flock has been depleted, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk says to us, and, and he didn't even know the whole story like we know. 
even if I don't see my prayers answered. And let me just give you a little spoiler alert. Habakkuk's prayers were not answered in his lifetime. You know how long he had to wait? Had to wait a long time. After he died, Israel had to wait. They were taken off to Babylon. They were put in captivity and they waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for Messiah to come. Habakkuk died, the prophet of Israel, asking those questions. But more importantly, making this proclamation, though the fig tree not bloom, though the fruit not be on the vine, though the harvest fail, though the flock be cut off, I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. He will give me the strength to tread on the side of a mountain if it be necessary. And what is the promise of Christmas? That all of this worked out for the good, that you and I live in a world because that God has entered into And because of Christmas, because of Christmas, we never have to question where God is at. Because because the promise of Christmas, his plans led to a world where God is always with us. Do you ever think about that? I know you might not think that God is directly attending to your situation right now. You think, where, where are you at, God? Where are you at, God? Well, Christmas promises us that God is always with us. You know how Matthew, Matthew's gospel introduces us to Jesus. Or you know the story. Matthew quotes Isaiah and says that a, a, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew tells us, hey, this is the story about Jesus. He came through Abraham. He came through David. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And maybe you've never paid attention to this, but do you know how Matthew's gospel ends? Do you know what the last words that come out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew's gospel are? Matthew begins, this is the story of Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus ends the book by saying, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that powerful? We live in a world where you may wonder, what are you doing, God? Where are you at, God? What are you up to? How long, God? You never have to question where God is at. He's with us. He will always be with us. As bright as that flame burns, his presence will never leave us. As surely as we are here today on this promise, our hope endures, our hope is everlasting because Jesus, Emmanuel, has come. He is with us today. He will always be with us and will never live in a world without his presence. So really, the message of Advent isn't that we're waiting on God. It's that God's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to open our eyes and put our hope and our faith in him. Because guess what? He's the same God today as he was to Habakkuk, as he was throughout the Bible. He says to Habakkuk, just trust me. Wait for it. It will not delay. It will surely come. I'll always be with you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of hope that Advent brings us. Lord, there are many hearts here today, I'm sure with many, many different prayer requests and many concerns, many worries, many burdens. 
Lord, there are a lot of people here today that have prayed that prayer. How long, oh Lord? How long, oh Lord? And, and maybe by, by seeing the perspective of Habakkuk and seeing the perspective of his generation and showing them what you were up to throughout the ages, maybe that has given them the confidence and the, the, the strength they need to not give up. Lord, Advent is about not giving up. It's about making it to the to the, to the end of the season, making it to Christmas and seeing that you have come to be with us and that you will never leave us. You will always be with us. God, you're the same God today that you were back then. Would you hear our hearts and would you give us the assurance today that you are with us and that the answer we're waiting for is on the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.